Welcome to the Science of Performance. This is a new podcast in the Free Trail Network sponsored by Bow Technology. My name is Dan Feeney and I'm going to be your host. Just a little background on me before I can talk about all the interesting guests that we are going to have on this season. I did a PhD in neuromechanics from the University of Colorado Boulder and I spent the last five years building a biomechanics laboratory at Bow Technology. We work with most of the leading brands across the world, and we've tested a number of different pieces of footwear, everything from snowboarding boots, alpine ski boots, to trail running shoes. I want to take you into a lot of the learnings that I've learned over these last five years, exposing some of the nuances, some of the areas where the science is gray, and really challenging some of the assumptions that I think are out there. I'm really excited to have you on this journey, and please leave comments and thoughts as to what you liked and what you don't like. Hello, everybody. You are listening to another episode of The Science of Performance, a new podcast from the Free Trail Network, sponsored by Bow Technology. As always, I'm your host, Dan Feeney, and we're going to be dissecting the fundamentals of peak performance from the biomechanics of footwear to the physiology of training, with a focus on challenging decade-old assumptions made by athletes, industry veterans, and consumers. Today, I'm really excited because we have two incredibly intelligent scientists that really put the mechanics in biomechanics. Um, so Eric Honert and Emily Mativich, they both sort of have these really nice complementary research backgrounds. I have the pleasure of working with Eric, and I have seen Emily speak at a number of different conferences. And knowing the things that they've researched and touched on, I thought it would be really exciting to have them in the lab. Um, so to give a brief introduction, Emily Mativich did her PhD at Vanderbilt University, and the title of her thesis was The Evaluation and Design of Non-Invasive Wearable Musculoskeletal Monitoring Tools for Research, Occupational, and Sport Applications. She and Eric both did their PhD under um, Carl Zellick, and then both of them did a postdoc under the legendary Ben O'Nig um, up at the University of Calgary, who's done a number of fundamental and foundational research studies. Currently, Emily is the director of biomechanics and, or excuse me, the director of biometrics and applied research at Orfix, Orpix, Sensory Insoles. Eric, uh, like I said, he did his PhD at Vanderbilt as well as a postdoctoral fellowship with Ben O'Nig. He was a Division One tennis player, and Eric and I have the pleasure of working together. At least I think it's the pleasure um, at Boa Technology, where Eric is the manager of biomechanics research. So, really excited to get into here. Thanks for both of you for coming on. Thanks for having us. So let's get started. Um, and, you know, to kind of ease into this, I'd love to just hear why you got interested in biomechanics in the first place. Maybe, Eric, if we can start with you. For sure. So I got really interested in research when I was an undergrad. You know, some other tennis players on the team were also doing research at the time. And, you know, I approached a professor at the time and I was like, hey, you know, I'd really like to get involved in research. And he asked me what my interests were. And I said, you know, between uh, biomedical engineering and also aerospace. Funny anecdote is that he said, unless you had a dream to build an airplane since you were really young, don't do aerospace. So I was like, great, perfect. I move all the time. I play tennis. You know, my dad's a chiropractor, so he knows a lot about the human body and how it moves as well. I think that really aligns with my interests as well. So that's where I really got my start was through my uh, undergrad institution. Awesome. And how about you, Emily? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, a lot of folks in the biomechanics community were somewhat motivated by their own sports or movement challenge they had growing up. Um, I grew up really passionate about dance, and I, I, I tore my ACL right before college. 
Um, but getting to interact with my surgeon and, and, and physical therapist really opened my eyes to this field of surgical engineering and rehabilitation engineering. And I was really excited to be able to, rather than study machines like cars, study the machine of the human body. And I was really excited about the kind of problem-solving aspects of research. And when I found you could do research in biomechanics, I was sold. So that's how I landed here. No, nice. That's awesome. And both of you have you know, a really strong mechanical engineering background. And I think biomechanics is such a multidisciplinary field where you have clinicians, you have mechanical engineers, you have people that really like statistics, and it, it comes together into this nice amalgamation. And so I really want to talk about, especially given your background, how a lot of the research that we've seen in footwear maybe does or doesn't hold up to the scrutiny of um, engineering and mechanics. So maybe to get started on a fairly contentious point, you know, when people go in a running store, it's very common. I've worked in a running store. I think this is still a pretty good way to go about it. Um, however, maybe as we'll see, there isn't a lot of research behind it. So you go in a running shop, somebody watches you walk or run, and then they pick a few shoes uh, for you to go forward with, and then you pick the one maybe that you find most comfortable. Emily, could you maybe get started? Um, both of you worked with Ben O'Nig, and he's had a number of sort of, we'll say, myth-busting papers. I think myth-busting even appears in the title of one of them, talking about what we do actually know about preventing injuries through running shoes and what we don't actually know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there are a few you know, common themes that are used in running shoe research or in running shoe marketing um, that are actually not super well supported by the science behind running performance and running injuries. So two very classic examples are that the purpose of shoes is to reduce impacts and provide a more cushioned run. And then another very common theme is the purpose of, of running shoes is to provide sufficient support so you don't overly pronate and kind of have a, a particular alignment of your foot and ankle when you're running. Um, those are very intuitive concepts probably for both runners and um, individuals that, that coach runners. But the, the, the biggest limitation is there's, there's no pathway between those concepts and the mechanism of injury. Um, and I think that's really exciting when we transition away from the intuition of what causes injury or pain and move towards what is the mechanism that um, leads up to these overuse injuries over time. Yeah, for sure. There's so much more involved than just the footwear, right? It's it's the training and everything. And so, Eric, how do you look at sort of running shoes and footwear in general as far as preventing injuries, being a tool in the toolbox? Um, where does your mind go? So in terms of footwear, you know, I think footwear is such an individual journey. You know, you know your footwear, you know, as a great marathoner, Dan, is not going to be the same footwear that I'm going to use, you know, on a daily basis, right? And so I think that there's really this specific journey that people need to take with their own footwear um, that's not maybe like in the current stream of thought with, you know, when people go to a, a shoe store and, and really try to try on shoes. So, you know, there are different shoes for, say, ultra athletes versus, you know, recreational runners. But I still think that there is maybe some more individuality that can maybe evolve with this. And I think, you know, uh, I think Brooks is really doing maybe a good job with this, is that they're really trying to prescribe, uh, you know, different footwear for different people. Uh, and, you know, they're trying to use biomechanics in the loop with this to really get at that individual level rather than just having somebody say, you know, somebody at the, at the store just look at how they're running. 
And so they're really trying to integrate that backend biomechanics into how their footwear works. Yeah, and you know, I think Emily and, and Eric, to some extent, you both touched on the two initial ideas, I think, behind footwear and injury were shock and pronation. You know, shock being basically how much force you get and pronation is a movement of the foot. Could maybe one of you take one of those and the other take the other and either debunk that or say maybe it's just a piece of the puzzle? And I don't know who wants to start with what, but I kind of intentionally left this vague. Emily, I think that you should take shock. This is like your bread and butter right here. Yeah, for sure. So I've had a lot of both fun and challenging conversations with, um, you know, folks both in the, the running community and academics in the biomechanics world. And I continue to shocked, uh, no pun intended, like be shocked at how much continual obsession with reducing running shock there is in the running biomechanics world, even today. Um, again, coming back to the intuition aspect, when, when you're a runner, that moment when your foot strikes the ground and you have that impact peak, that shock at foot contact, intuitively that feels bad. That's not something we experience when we're walking or standing or doing our activities of daily living. It totally makes sense that intuitively that is a unpleasant experience that you'd want to avoid. The biggest challenge is that point in time when your foot contacts the ground is, is not the point in time when you're leg, muscles, bones, and tendons are experiencing the highest forces. The highest forces occur midway through the, the running stance phase when your calf planar flexor muscles are doing all this effort um, to flex and extend your ankle. They're re really the powerhouse of that mid to late stance of running. And those really powerful muscle contractions are putting a lot of compression and bending on your bones. And, and that's really the phase that causes those little um, kind of a accumulation of small damage to your bones, muscles, and tendons. Um, so it, it really is that that impact peak occurs at a completely different time than the portion of the running phase that we should um, kind of be focused on if we're looking at avoiding overuse injuries. Yeah, and just one follow-up, and this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, what is shock? For sure. Um, I, I know... Uh, especially like in the, in the wearable device community and also in the, the footwear community, the phrase shock is very intuitive. I've seen it be used to indicate either uh, a, a peak acceleration, a peak load, a, a loading rate. It could be the peak force of something on the foot, something on the shoe, something on the leg. So I, I'm hoping what you're getting at is that it's a, a very ambiguous term that may sound intuitive, but it's it's not well-defined and it doesn't relate to the mechanism of injury. Yeah, that, that was exactly where I was going. Emily, I mean, um, I did my PhD in a neuromechanics lab. And so we actually did literally shock people from time to time to evoke muscular contractions. And so I've always found just the term shock, I think it's a very good consumer term, right? Like I know what it feels like when my foot hits the ground, exactly like you said, and there is some amount of shock involved in that, especially in like really steep downhill running. However, just because it's something that a consumer understands scientifically, if we sort of leave it at that level of vagueness, it's going to be hard to draw a link between that and something as multifaceted as injury. Um, I do think consumer research has played a big role in why shock, and then the next thing, Eric, I'd love you to hit on is pronation, why those two things were really singled out as mechan potential mechanisms of injury. One, consumers get it, and two, shoe companies can affect them. Whether or not they affect injury risk is another question. So, Eric... What the heck is pronation? Can we measure it? How do you measure it? 
Oh, man. Pronation <laughs> is, I feel like, another one of these bag of worms for sure. And, you know, I would say it's kind of, it's how your ankle moves in and out when you're, uh, when you're contacting the ground, meaning, you know, that kind of that motion when you're rolling your foot, meaning that in and out inversion, eversion of your foot. And I think one of the really seminal works in this area was a really nice perspective study that looked at, I think it was maybe over 700 runners that had different levels of pronation from, you know, neutral pronation to really extreme pronation. And people with, say, no pronation to moderate pronation, you know, in this study, they showed that they were not at any elevated risk for injury. It was only those, like, it was like 5% or something like that of runners that have that extreme, extreme pronation that are actually at risk for, run, or for injury. And so this is such a small subset of the running community that we really shouldn't be focused on this aspect nearly as much as we are. And so shoe companies like to try to affect this by, say, uh, creating shoes that have uh, different densities of foams in the heel. So they call those like dual density shoes. Or they can call it, say, like medial posting of the shoe where, you know, it's all the same concept that they're trying to basically create a harder material on, say, uh, the medial side of the heel versus a softer material on the lateral side of the heel. And so with this concept, you know, I wish that it wasn't promoted as much as it is in running stores. And, you know, I was at a running store just the other day. And, you know, my partner was trying on shoes and there was a, another lady that came in and was like, oh, I have a lot of pronation, so I need a lot of support in my shoe. And I, my biomechanist side of me just said, I really wanted to scream out and be like, hey, you know, it may feel like that's a really bad thing, but it's actually not. So, you know, kind of going forward, moving past this pronation aspect is, uh, you know, Ben O'Neig has this concept of the, the human movement path. Basically that you're trying to fit a footwear to how you move. And basically the concept behind this is that your joints are gonna move in a very natural way. And this is gonna be, again, very specific for you. So, you know, Emily and I are not gonna have essentially the same ankle range of motion. We're not gonna have essentially the same bone structure. And so, you know, we should really be choosing footwear in this case that really help us move, you know, akin to how our body is moving. Cool. Yeah, I like that a lot. And, you know, I think one caveat I always like to tell runners is just because we can't find the effect of the population level doesn't mean everyone with stability shoes should throw them out. Um, I know plenty of runners that run in a stability shoe and they have for years and they've never been injured. You're perfect. You don't need to worry about it, right? And that's great. <laughs> yeah. It, this is really a, um, us understanding the mechanism by which that occurs. And I think what both of you just said really ties together nicely, right? Like, Eric, your preferred movement path, perhaps if you can keep someone in that preferred movement path, that then reduces some of those internal muscle movements and moments that are required that Emily talked about that could be actually what are maybe causing the micro stresses occurring on bones or ligaments, et cetera. Um, you know, going into that, uh, Emily, I know you had done some work and there's some work done in a different lab at Calgary while you were there on sort of load variability. And 
if shoes are maybe 10 or 15% of the puzzle, I think training is probably a much larger percentage of the puzzle. Could you maybe talk about some of the ways that the training aspect from a scientific point of view could fit into this injury reduction puzzle? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just tying it back to shoes for a moment, you know, when you think you go into a shoe store and you're selecting whatever your new footwear is going to be, someone looks at you walk or run maybe for 30 or 60 seconds. And that's such a snapshot of the, the timeline when your body's going to be experiencing wear and tear in those shoes, right? Like we look at 30 to 60 seconds, you're going to be running in them over days, weeks, months, years. And that's really the kind of the scale of time we need to look at when we're thinking about overuse injury risk. Um, so we know that regardless of footwear, your, your movement pattern is such a big influencer on the magnitude and duration of loading your different bones, muscles, and tendons experience. Um, and, you know, when I think about shock and, and impacts being very intuitive indicators of injury risk, this is a very crude alternative, but I almost wish runners could think more about how hard do you feel like you're working? And that's actually a really good indicator of potential damage you're accumulating to your body. So if you're working harder running uphill, that likely is associated with your leg muscles having way more powerful contractions to achieve that movement. Those larger muscle contractions are um, putting more wear and tear on your bones. The little micro damage and micro stresses over time is much more significant for contributing to your, your injury risk. So th thinking through um, what combinations of speeds and slopes and terrains you're training on and for what duration kind of gives that macro lens of um, kind of which portions of our uh, ex exercise are contributing to the most damage over time. Yeah, I think that's great. And there is a saying sometimes in sports science, which is you know tangentially related to biomechanics, that a lot of times we're just proving what coaches already knew. And um, so I ran at University of Delaware in college and decades before I started um, a throwing coach, you know, shot put, discus, et cetera. For one year, he was in charge of coaching cross country. Um, I, I don't know exactly what happened, but he was still the throws coach when I was at Delaware. And I remember him telling me one time that his name was Larry Pratt, super legend, uh, master's world record holder, I believe. He said, yeah, the way I, I coached distance runners was if at the end of practice, they left um, practice talking, then I knew they could still go hard the next day. If they left and their heads were kind of down, then maybe they needed a recovery day. And it, it is simple and beautiful. Um, moving on from sort of injury risk and knowing that we need some variability in the training week that we have, maybe even some variability in the shoes that we use throughout the week, perhaps all that variability could actually just be good. Let's talk a bit about the bread and butter of both of you, which is mechanics. Um, and so I think before we can really even understand why shoes or training might cause an injury, we need to understand the mechanics. And let's start maybe with Eric, if you want to talk about what I would say you refer to as your baby, which is something called distal rear footwork. And maybe if you talk about power and work more generally as it applies to running. For sure. So, you know, the human body, we are really, really good at generating power. Um, you can think about this, say, like your car can generate power right through its engine. And so we have all these little different engines within our body that can really generate this power. So in biomechanics, we like to think about, you know, these really power sectors being centered around the ankle, knee, and hip. You know, really, the, you can think about at the ankle, you have these powerful plantar flexors that are really helping you to push off from one stride to the next stride. 
whether, whether you're walking or running, right? And so, you know, thinking about this work that your muscles are doing, thinking about this power that this, your muscles are generating with each and every step, you know, I, I really dove more deep into what's going on with the shoe and what's going on with your foot, right? You still have a lot of different muscles in your, uh, in your foot. You know, you have 26 bones, 33, or 33 joints, and over 100 muscles, tendons, and ligaments just within your foot. And so, you know, this estimate, this distal rear foot estimate, basically provides a combined lump sum of all of the power that can be generated about your foot, so about all those different joints and muscles, and also with the different um, components that we see in a shoe. Say that's like the shoe cushioning, you're gonna see a lot of dissipation maybe from that shoe cushioning, especially when you're contacting the ground at first. And then, for instance, when you get into some of these more advanced footwear technologies that are integrating carbon fiber plates into them, this estimate can also really get at some of that energy storage and return that we're seeing from these carbon fiber plates that are now being introduced a lot into these footwear. Yeah, that's awesome. And so, I mean, I love this idea because I don't think a lot of people really appreciate the fact that we can literally calculate how much work is being done at the foot, at the ankle, at the knee. And maybe, Eric, if you could just give an intuitive understanding of, like, what does that represent? Is that how hard I'm going? So we'll say for sure for at the ankle. You know, the that power and that work that's being, uh, you know, contributed to the body is really being generated by those ankle plantar flexors. So, like, your calf muscles. And so that's going to be really directly... Uh, correlated with, say, the effort and work that's going on there. Now, when we get to the foot, there's a lot more what we call passive tissues. So tissues that, you know, are maybe a little bit more dissipative. So absorb energy. And then you have those muscles that can contribute energy as well. And so in this case, you know, we have, you know, kind of a lump of different materials that can do both things, both dissipate and generate energy at the foot. Nice. Yeah. And um, this this ties nicely into some of the work that we both do in our lab and then you guys have done during your postdoc. And so just for the audience, you might imagine if you're trying to design a trail racing shoe, for example, you might want to maximize energy return at some point in time or when somebody's running uphill or downhill. And all of these things are going to have design implications and we can measure them in the laboratory. But we know that out in the field is going to be a challenge. And so, Emily, if you could talk about a paper that both of you were authors on. Um, it's a bit of a long title, but I'll just summarize it as a foot and footwear mechanical power theoretical framework. Emily, could you talk about why you guys wrote this paper and what some of the main take-homes were as how they relate to actual products in the market? Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think this paper was primarily motivated by the, the narrative in the running shoe injury, uh, industry that... Um, when shoes store and return energy, that's good, right? People like when shoes have um, spring-like elements, whether that be cushioning that compresses and rebounds or features that make the shoe um, stiff along the length of the shoe, like those carbon fiber plates and the energy storage and return that could occur from bending the shoe and then allowing that to rebound. And 
when we took a step back and really thought about the mechanics of that process and and the, the power and work that shoes and footwear are able to provide, it's really not so simple. You're, you're not able to just say that shoes that store and return energy are good for the runner or help propel the runner forward. Exactly what you were just mentioning, there, there's an optimal timing and magnitude to when shoes store and return energy. Um, and when we look at that magnitude and timing of our foot and footwear's energy storage and return and look at how that aligns with what your biology is doing, your hip, knee, and ankle, there's definitely a way to, to, to optimize how both of those function so that the shoe cooperates with the runner and helps them when they need it and doesn't um, fight and compete with the runner when they, when they don't need any assistance from the shoe. So the purpose of this paper was really to motivate um, footwear developers and footwear researchers to think about this magnitude and timing of footwear energy storage and return and learn how we can better tune footwear features like cushioning or longitudinal bending stiffness um, to, to best align with what the body is already doing and where the body could benefit from some offloading and um, energy return from the shoe. Yeah, I think it's super interesting, right? Because maybe there are certain joints Eric talked about, especially in running, we really look at the foot shoe, the ankle, the knee, and the hip. Emily, could you maybe talk a little bit about if you have an intervention? And by intervention, I mean it could be a carbon fiber plate. It could be a highly compressive, highly energy-returning material like Keybax or polyethylene block amide. What could that do to those different joints and power-producing centers? And is one better than the other? Is it better to produce uh, power in one of those spots? Yeah, absolutely. I would measure the success of any footwear feature addition or change um, against does it reduce the mechanical work required by one or more of the joints. And what that means is does it mean that the runner has to use less muscular effort to make the same exact motion happen. Um, the uh, muscles that span the ankle joint are contribute to the ma majority of the metabolic cost of running. So if a footwear feature reduces some of the mechanical work required at an ankle, um, it, it's very likely and exciting that that can reduce uh, the muscular effort and the metabolic cost of, of running at the same speed. Um, and Another opportunity is our, our body is best well set up to produce power at the ankle and then the knee is a little less well set up and then the hip is a kind of the worst of the three. So any, any footwear feature changes that kind of um, cooperate with that setup and, and, and don't offload or try to redistribute work to the, to, to the knee or hip is really favorable. So we take advantage of you know, biology is really smart. We take advantage of what biology figured out that our ankle is most um, uh, well set up for producing power and work during running. Yeah, I think that's super well put, right? <clears throat> now, I think most listeners are probably very used to hearing, for example, the 4% study and metabolic cost. And I'd love if either of you want to just differentiate the difference between metabolic cost and what you're talking about, which is really the amount of work mechanical work done at each joint. All right, I'll take this one. So, you know, the metabolic cost or your energetic cost that we a lot of times see measured in labs is, you know, when people put that mask on their face and it's really measuring your uh, oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange with each and every breath. 
Now, you know, when we go into lab, this can vary day by day. It can even vary throughout the day. So, you know, I think a great case study is that, you know, you can basically drink a cup of coffee in the morning and it's going to vastly affect that energy expenditure just or the energy expenditure calculations just because you had that cup of coffee in the morning. And so when you go into these studies like the Nike 4% study, they have all of their subjects fast for a certain number of hours beforehand. You know, sometimes it's three hours and it goes all the way up to 12 hours beforehand. And this is just so that you are essentially burning the same nutrients in your body when you're running. So in that caffeine instance, you're gonna really burn the caffeine off really fast in that case. And then it's going to really muck with the the measurements that we're taking because it's going to change how we're evaluating between footwear. Whereas what Emily was talking about was essentially a computation of what we're uh, of what the body is doing, and so this isn't affected by say what you eat that day. It's going to be simply affected by your running strategy. So you know, say if you're a four foot runner, it's going to be different than if you're a rear foot runner. But regardless of that, we can evaluate how much mechanical work is being performed at each joint. Yeah, and so just to summarize, we could measure mechanical work all the time, and it should maybe trend with metabolics, but a lot of times a number of other factors play into metabolics. The measurement is much noisier. And so I think when people hear this and they're talking about efficiency and economy, a lot of times the 4% is going to be what grabs the headline because that's really what you can absolutely feel. But to get to that, you had to affect the joints. Um, Eric, if you could just maybe touch a little bit. You did a study while you were at Calgary where you looked at runners over the course of, I think, 56 minutes, and you looked at the relative amount of work each of those joints was doing. Could you maybe give us a take-home on that? For sure. So, you know, this was, I would say, an addendum study to what has been kind of out there a little bit already is that, you know, over the course of a run, we really see that... uh, at the beginning of a run, you're essentially running optimally, right? You are you have your best stride out there, and as you progress through your run, you know sometimes you get fatigued, and a lot of times your muscles get fatigued. And what happens then is that those really efficient uh, calf muscles that are really helping you push off between each step are you know, are getting tired. And so what happens is that your hip joints wind up uh, and your hip muscles wind up taking up more of that power that needs to be generated with each step. And so my study here was actually looking at that interchange at the ankle and the foot in this case. And so we really saw that, um, again, we saw that reduction in amount of ankle work that you can perform throughout the run. And interestingly enough, the small muscles in your foot also had to take up more of that essentially lax in what's going on at the ankle. And so you have nice, powerful muscles at the ankle joint, meaning at with your calf muscles to produce that power. And as soon as they can't produce that power, other small muscles essentially have to take that up, and in this case, at the foot. What was really interesting is that another student at the University of Calgary actually placed carbon fiber plates inside the shoe. And when he did that and 
like went over a really long run, it actually delayed this offset from the ankle to the hip as well. Meaning that with these carbon fiber plates, you can run more efficiently for longer. Cool. Yeah, that's a great uh, summary. And I think when people think about their performance in an ultra marathon, for example, as you start getting the sensations of fatigue, potentially what's going on is some of your less efficient muscles at the hip, knee, or even your foot are taking up some of this work. We can use footwear in some of these cases to hopefully offload that. But, you know, the big issue, I would say, is a lot of this stuff is done in the lab because as scientists, we're really happy to be in the lab. We can measure things really precisely, you know, 2,000 times a second. It makes us really comfortable. Emily, you wrote a really cool paper um, back in 2019. Again, a re- you guys really like the long paper. So, again, I'll summarize. But uh, you said you mentioned how ground reaction force metrics were not strongly correlated with tibial bone load when running. And there's a ton of implications for injury, for wearable risk, and even for footwear design. Emily, could you talk about some of the things, maybe some of the challenges, one, about moving outside the lab, and then two, about what you found from this study? Yeah, absolutely. So maybe I'll comment on the, the first part, um, how, how we take research from the, from the lab to products that can be used by runners and athletes every single day. Um, you know, I, I think a, a dream progression of scientific research would always be you start in the lab where your research can be highly controlled, but it is not quite translatable. And then you use those findings and transition down the spectrum towards maybe more naturalistic setting studies out in the wild where it is less controlled, but you have higher confidence in how a footwear solution or a wearable device um, kind, kind of translates to its best use case context. Um, and sometimes, unfortunately, I think researchers or sports scientists start at one end and call it a day. Sometimes they start at the other end and call it a day. But I, I'm really excited about research that kind of spans that spectrum where we leverage both the advantages of lab-based testing and both in the wild testing. And, you know, hearing what you all do at, at BOA, it seems like a lovely kind of spanning of that spectrum, right? Like we know what we're really good at measuring in the lab and we know when we need to take things outside of the lab and maybe sacrifice a little bit of our control and confidence in our um, measurement protocols. Um, In this particular study, we were looking at how we could use uh, wearable device features to monitor overuse injury risk, um, non-invasively with a wearable. And like you said, the hope would be that this could help runners monitor their injury risk over time. Or it could be a tool for footwear developers or other sports researchers to evaluate how a specific product, like a shoe, influences the loading on our body and our potential injury risk. Um, Something really fun about this project was we were looking how to use wearable devices mounted outside the body to monitor what was happening inside the body. Monitor what were the um, forces experienced by our Achilles tendon and our tibia bone Can we really well estimate that to monitor wear and tear to those tissues over time? Um, So, you know, a lot of that research did happen in that lab-based setting, but when we looked towards how it could translate to the real world, something we were really focused on is what is the minimal set of feasible sensors that could well estimate the wear and tear on our leg bones? We know that in a lab, we have access to kind of an infinite suite of measurement tools. But if we can identify a a small set of sensors that could be worn by a runner day to day or or, or most days, and that was a great indicator of injury risk, that has a lot of potential. So we found in that study a nice overlapping subset of sensors 
where if you placed an inertial measurement unit to measure motion of the foot and leg and a pressure sensing insole inside the shoe that would monitor um, the force and force distribution between the foot and the shoe. Um, features from those signals combined could give you a really strong estimate of the loading experienced by the tibia bone and potential injury risk. Thanks, that, that was super awesome. And before I toss it to Eric to talk about some of the in-lab versus in-field research that we've done together at BOA, Emily, I'd love to just maybe nitpick a little bit um, into a contentious issue that, that you brought up with this paper that um, I think is just really good to have these conversations. So, for example, when I was younger, I heard about vertical loading rates a lot. Um, and you know this could just be measured as one of those measures of shock that you talked about earlier, where if you run barefoot, if you run forefoot, you generally tend to reduce that measurement, and it's really just how quickly force gets loaded on your body. As a lifelong forefoot runner, not out of choice or anything, just that's how I run, I still get injured a lot. Um, and so it always struck me as a little bit funny that people thought this might be a, a way to fix everything because you reduce this impact peak. Can you talk about what you found here and then maybe what some of the research says about this vertical loading rate measurement and how it relates to injury risk? Yeah, absolutely. So, yes, I, I, I agree with you that loading rate is, again, one of those intuitive and very common narratives about what is a kind of a risk factor for overuse injury. Um, and I'll just reiterate the one point again that that portion when that loading rate occurs when you have the impact peak and the quick increase in, in force development is that portion when your foot initially contacts the ground. And that is a, a really small relative magnitude of force compared to the large muscle contraction forces that happen midway through stance. Um, and, and actually there has been some research that shows that the way the center of pressure progresses with forefoot runners, the positioning of the center of pressure at mid stance is often slightly more um, anterior, which causes a larger moment arm around the ankle, larger Achilles tendon peak forces, larger loading on the tibia bone. So it, it, mechanistically, it's not totally surprising that some forefoot runners do end up experiencing more um, Achilles tendon or planar flexor or tibia bone injuries. Um, uh, another kind of gut check intuitive example I always go to, we were talking about um, sloped running. Um, if you think about the, the impact, when you think about impact running, you probably, your mind goes to, to downhill running. That's when we kind of have these large shocks, impacts, loading rates. Um, but we're actually getting way more damage on our tendon and bone during uphill running because it requires such more muscular effort. So the condition where our shock impacts loading rate is smaller, our bone and tendon loading rates are much higher and are likely contributing to more wear and tear damage to our body. Thank you. My, my Achilles appreciate you granting us a reason why they, <laughs> they sometimes hurt. Uh, there are some really awesome figures in that paper that I touched, and we'll link to it in the show notes, that do show, you know, sort of during stance, when do these high muscle forces occur? And I think it's incredibly important. I will say my guesstimate, this is not based on any data, this is just based on doing a pretty big downhill run this morning. I bet if you modeled something at the knee and hip, I, I wonder if there would be some big quad dominant um, muscular forces during downhill running. That's maybe what people are associating with the impact. Do you mind and if I actually add something? I would that, love Dan? for you to add something. Eric. Um, so I think that one of the more interesting papers 
um, surrounding this body of literature as well is from Brent Edwards, who is also at the University of Calgary. And, you know, he, you know, just took this idea of, you know, does loading rate actually affect the micro damage on your bones? Meaning how for how quickly the force basically is exhibited on your on your bones, does that actually increase the amount of micro damage that can occur on bones? And so in this case, he actually took um, bone and put it in a mechanical tester. And he varied the, the frequency at which he loaded it. So whether he loaded it really quickly or really slowly. And so in this case, when you load it really quickly, it was actually a protective mechanism on the bone. And it actually showed less micro damage when you look than when you loaded the bone slowly. And so this idea that if you load the foot really, really quickly, like you do with loading rate, that it actually produces more micro damage, I would say is actually a myth there. Yeah, I think that's a great aside, Eric. And one of the things I've always personally thought about this literature is, you know, to be perfectly fair, um, Irene Davis, for example, a great researcher out of Harvard, also a Delaware at, at some time, which is where I did my master's. She has found some results where people with high loading rates were injured more often um, and some interventions where perhaps that could decrease injury risk. I've always wondered maybe there's just a, a hidden variable. Um, you know, for these runners with high loading rates, perhaps there's something that we didn't measure that's actually causing the injury. And so it's not to say anything's wrong. It's just one of the things when we go outside of biomechanics, we look at econo um, econometrics briefly. People do a lot of work in what's called causal modeling or directional acyclic graphs. And we haven't really done that in biomechanics yet. We, we don't really know how to collect all the variables and, and argue about the overarching model of what causes injury. But, you know, I, I think these are great um, areas. Eric, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what we've done in the lab at BOA to take what we did in the lab, bring it out into the field with the rattlesnakes and everything. <laughs> yeah, so uh, last summer we, uh, we went out into the field and actually evaluated footwear on trail. And so we were really trying to look, differentiate between uh, shoe or footwear uppers in a trail shoe. And we also do this in the lab as well. And so in both cases, we used similar measures that Emily referenced earlier. So we put plantar pressure sensors underneath the foot that can measure pressure in about 270 locations. And it's a pretty thin insole. It's about, you know, three or five millimeters. So it doesn't necessarily affect people too, too much in that case. And then we also had accelerometers, gyroscopes attached to their heel as well. And so this gives us a measure. We can, you know, do some fancy algorithms and measure step-by-step -step running speed. And then we can also measure some of those metrics that Emily referenced, such as shock. And so when we looked at in the field versus in the lab, we saw vast differences between these two. And so this really, you know, pushes us to, you know, we need to be testing in these, you know, valid, uh, ecologically valid terrains. And I'll say it wasn't actually just that one was necessarily higher. So, you know, let's take shock, for example. 
shock wasn't necessarily always higher outside than it was inside. Incidentally enough, when people ran downhill inside the lab, they had a greater amount of shock in the lab than they did outside. And so, say, using this as a running intervention inside the lab doesn't really necessarily mean that it's going to actually translate to outside either. Yeah, thanks. And, you know, that was a great 30 people out on the trail. Um, we'll link to that study also in the show notes. And just to give a bit of a plug to the people that are paying Eric and I at least to be here, we thank you, Eric, uh, Emily, for taking the time, is we also found that with BOA, with some of the footwear attributes, we could actually improve performance out on the trail. And you can feel free to read the study about how we quantified performance. That segues into the next study that I want to talk about. Um, starting with Eric, to talk about, you, you published a paper where you were looking at two feature recommendations. You talked to a number of designers, figuring out what they were interested in. Could you tell me what you learned from that study? Yeah, so this was actually the first study that I did during my postdoc up at the University of Calgary. And, you know, the goal of this study um, was actually kind of stepping back from the biomechanics realm and really trying to understand what footwear researchers and developers are really interested in. And so, you know, Benno has this huge contact of people in the footwear industry. And so he, we use those contacts along with reached out to, say, journalists, footwear researchers like Emily and Dan, um, to really get an understanding of what they thought, not necessarily what's been proven in the lab, but what they thought was really, really impactful in terms of footwear. And I'll say the easiest one was shoe mass. So like everybody thought, you know, shoe mass was, you know, super important, which is fairly intuitive. If you're going to have, you know, a lot more weight on your foot, you're going to probably run slower. And in fact, this has been proven time and time again in the lab, where it's that you have about a 1% decrease in energy expenditure with 100 grams taken off of your shoe. The next, I think, uh, one of the more surprising ones was that, uh, you know, upper, upper breathability of shoes is also super important. You know, this is basically deals with how much uh, your foot basically sweats. And there's relatively little research out there in terms of what the impact of uh, breathability of footwear is on people. Now, I think it'd be great to do a nice long study with this, maybe have somebody run, you know, an hour on the treadmill. Also, one of my collaborators, Kota Takahashi, is doing, you know, some research with how, how much your feet actually... Uh, or like the thermal component of your footwear really impacts your performance as well. So, you know, I think that could be a really interesting uh, study going forward. Yeah, thanks, Eric. And I, I will say my, <clears throat> my high horse about the, the mass and shoe performance, this is for sure, this relation has been shown time and time again. First time in the 1950s, Margaria, and then Ned Frederick, who actually, he was the, basically the first director of Nike's lab when it was in Exeter, New Hampshire. He found the, a similar improvement. If you add 100 grams to a shoe, it makes you 1% less economical. 100% makes sense. I agree with all that. That being said, most of the shoes that we deal with, especially when you're thinking of a racing shoe, are going to be within this small range of around 200 grams, 225, 250 grams. So I do believe there's some sort of asymptote because we also know when, when runners transition to barefoot, 
they are so zero grams added to their body, they're less economical. So there must be something that foams, that geometries of the shoe, that carbon fiber plates that fit could do that actually improves your performance and it counteracts the weight of it. And that segues nicely, at least in my mind, that segues this nicely to Emily. You you published a paper towards a biomechanical understanding of performance improvements with advanced running shoes. You know, when you're out in the field, you hear a number of people with a number of crazy, um, some valid, some maybe not so valid points as to why super shoes work. I'd love for you to maybe talk about what you learned from this study and what we actually know works within super shoes that makes them quote unquote super. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think this does tie quite nice well to the, to the mass comment, because um, I think exactly what you were getting at, that when we think one of the, the hallmark achievements of, of super shoes is extraordinary improvements in um, midsole foam technology and geometry. And often those midsole foams, um, as we get towards higher and higher stack heights, that means more material and more weight. But obviously, um, that, that weight, uh, that however small that added weight must be beneficial if we're getting added benefit from that additional energy storage and return capabilities from midsole foam. Um, a, a big message of what we were trying to communicate with that paper about a biomechanical understanding of performance improvement was um, encouraging footwear developers and running researchers not to evaluate a, a shoe in isolation. We can do a lot of um, benchtop material testing or, or, or modeling of how shoes bend, deform, store and return energy. Um, but, but, but none of that matters until we look at how it performs on a runner and how it supports the runner to re either reduce the effort that the runner um, requires at a given running speed or support them to run faster or support them to run at a particular speed or economic cost longer. Um, and I, w one topic we really delve into in some of the, these papers is talking about um, inter-runner variability. A uh, given shoe, when you put it on a bench top to test its material properties or other feature capabilities, that bench top testing is going to output one result for that shoe's capabilities. You put that shoe on a variety of runners and it is going to reduce the metabolic costs, like Eric was mentioning when we talk about um, incorporating the physiology and the metabolic cost. And it could also vary widely how it influences their mechanical demand in that shoe. Um, so I, I think a, a big message from that uh, study is, is don't assume super, super shoes or any other footwear that we know from benchtop testing has spring-like or energy storage and return capabilities. We can't assume that that translates equally to all runners or all athletes. Yeah, I think that's an, a great take-home message. And of course, not everyone's going to have the ability to maybe test every shoe metabolically on their own, but you can do a number of things. You could take some shoes if you have the opportunity to, to buy two or three or something like that. And you do repeats, measure your heart rate, measure to your point earlier, Emily, your exertion. And this can tell you a lot about what shoes work well for you versus which don't. I think the other thing that I hear very frequently is, oh, like I just switched the shoe. It has a carbon fiber plate. So obviously I'm faster. And Eric and I have collected some data in, in the lab of Bowen. That's not the case for everyone. Some people don't respond super well to carbon fiber plates, and we don't exactly know why yet. And I think similar to what you were saying, Emily, we don't exactly know why a super foam doesn't 
evenly produce benefits for everyone. But we've known this for a long time that some people just respond really well to, for example, more foam, and some people respond really well to a shoe that's low to the ground. Um, all this inter-individual variability is not something that we really quantify super well in science. Um, switching topics, because I know we're kind of running long here, both of you have done some work on using machine learning and artificial intelligence solutions in wearable devices and what they can tell us with respect to biomechanics, with respect to injury risk, et cetera. Um, Emily, I'd love for you to talk about at least some of the work that you've done on maybe looking at prospective injury prevention from the wearables machine learning AI space. Yeah, absolutely. I think this ties well to our discussion about capabilities for lab-based measurements and what's possible outside the lab. So we know that anytime we want to use wearable devices or some other measurement tool outside the lab, we're going to sacrifice some measurement capability. And where I think any sort of machine learning comes in really well is helping us fill in those gaps of data that we might be missing out on when we transition from kind of a really robust um, sensor set in a lab to an outside of the lab testing. Um, so what, you know, what we found in some of our research and what a, a lot of the sport and wellness technology is publishing about today is we know that we'll have a limited set of wearable sensor features to monitor um, an, an athlete or an individual in the real world. Can we extract features that we know are somehow related to the mechanism of performance, injury, or recovery, and then use those features that we know have some association um, to feed into a machine learning model that estimates something like loading to your tibia bone or cumulative damage to your Achilles tendon and, and, and use those you know, best guess estimates of, of performance or injury indicators to monitor individuals over time and give out um, w warning flag. All these tools would always be for risk indication I don't think anybody um, in this space ever claims to definitively be able to say, don't go on your run tomorrow or else you'll get injured, but be using it as um, tools to nudge runners and athletes um, to make decisions that reduce their risk. Yeah, um, that's a great point. And Eric, if you could maybe dovetail on what you did with the machine learning model to estimate ground reaction forces in a more portable way. Yeah. So this is one of the bread and butters that we use in the lab is essentially measuring ground reaction forces or basically the equal and opposite force underneath your foot. So you can think about this as, you know, the ground reaction force when you're standing on a bathroom scale is what your body weight. Right, and we can actually measure this really with high fidelity in the lab up to 2,000 times a second. And so we were trying to use, say, those planar pressure measurements that I referenced earlier that we can measure underneath the foot. And it's a very portable sensor, something that Emily referenced as well earlier in terms of you know, her sensor suite that's being used to maybe predict injury risk. So we really wanted to use this to predict those forces underneath the foot. That's kind of the first step of biomechanics that we can do in the lab. And so we used um, a recurrent neural network, which is this really fancy word. And I feel like neural networks are in machine learning is kind of like this black box. But a recurrent neural network is actually what is used to predict text. So like when you're texting on your phone and 
you know, you start texting and it starts predicting the next word or series of words in a phrase, that's a recurrent neural network that's happening in the background. So we use this to try to predict these forces that occur underneath your foot during running. Now, and we had about, it was uh, 16 or 18 people in this study in total. And we were getting, you know, fairly good at, um, errors, you know, errors around 8% in terms of when we're trying to predict uh, these ground reaction forces for people. And I think the, the biggest take home for me with this uh, machine learning was that when we started plugging in uh, people's own data, so like say you would go into a lab, you would train, and you know we would actually use your own data to train that network, it got really good at then predicting uh, those ground reaction forces going forward. And so this is, again, kind of going along with this theme today of you know, having going from this population specific biomechanics to really those individual biomechanics. As soon as we can start getting in with that individual, we can start better predicting, you know, those ground reaction forces and then maybe in this case better providing footwear as well. Yeah, I think what, what ties both of what you're saying together is <clears throat> we've used over the last century, give or take we've learned about biomechanics at the population level. And it started small because biomechanics was a real pain in the butt. You can imagine 50 years ago, you were literally digitizing landmarks frame by frame, those 2,000 per second or a little bit less at that time. And so you couldn't do many subjects. And then now we can do a ton of subjects, especially with some of the mo <clears throat> markerless motion capture data. However, getting back to the, the cohesive theory that sort of draws together performance, injury risk, and what we can get from these wearable sensors, that's going to require another level of causality, probably at the end of the day, where machine learning can come up with incredible ways to recognize patterns. But if you only can recognize the pattern and do, as Emily said, flag someone, the next step is what do we do with that flag? And so I think as we close out, I'd love to hear if the three of us wanted to start some sort of scientific coaching conglomerate. Um, I think we've got a lot of good ideas in here. What would you guys want to measure for the athletes? How do you think we could use um, the space to improve athlete performance? And then maybe if you could touch on a little bit, because that's probably not going to happen, um, what should athletes do on their own to, to try to minimize injury risk and then find the right shoes for them? I could kick it off first, yeah. <laughs> um, so tying it back as always, if, if we look at the injury lens and tying it back to the mechanism of injury, uh, we, we know that most overuse injuries to our bones, muscles, and tendons are due to repeated wear and tear. Our body does not only experience wear and tear when we go on a run or do whatever um, training we have planned for the day, whether, you know, whatever few hours that may be. Our body experiences wear and tear all day long as we move through our activities of daily living. Um, so kind of one feature that I would be really excited to monitor would be a wear and tear on an athlete 24-7. And that could be really cute as crude estimates, something like 24-7 monitoring of their walking speed, elevation change, um, and heart rate or some indicator of exertion, just to give a rough estimate of how hard all of their um, muscles are working throughout the duration of the day to kind of get that holistic understanding of the wear and tear um, your body experiences. And then hopefully that would inform some 
action and decision-making about are there aspects um, outside of your training that may be contributing to damage to your musculoskeletal structures and elevating your injury risk? And how can we look to kind of um, make changes to both our training and all that time we spend outside of training? Love it. So I really love the idea, like Emily said, of being able to basically look at cumulative loads. I think that's awesome. And, you know, maybe I'll take a little bit different tact on this one then. I think that there is a fascinating wearable that's being right now developed out of the University of Wisconsin. And they have colloquially named it the tendon tapper. And what it can do is fairly accurately estimate the loads on your Achilles tendon. And so this really starts to get at some of those muscular loads that really influence, you know, the tibial load that uh, Emily was referencing earlier. So I think it'd be really fascinating to deploy this type of a wearable sensor, you know, in the field to really start to better estimate the actual loads that are happening on people rather than, you know, say, maybe using machine learning or, you know, using shock as a pseudo measurement of, uh, of load on the body and actually start to really start to measure what's going on inside the body. Yeah, I love that. And both of you tied to something that I don't, you probably didn't know we talked about, but another uh, guest on this podcast is a PhD in exercise physiology, um, James Sprague. He talked a lot about the the things you do the other 20 plus hours a day that you're not training, whether it's stress more from a physiological lens, probably plays just as big a role on injury risk. And, um, you know, the wearable self, uh, the quantified self rather was a big trend a few years ago. I think sometimes maybe we don't quite have the basic understanding, Eric, to your point of actually what's going on within the body to, to create these larger statistical models. However, we're getting better every day. And then, you know, for each person, if they can just find something that they feel comfortable and, and happy in, maybe that's a good place to get started. So before we go, any last comments from either of you two? I'll just end with my final comment that I've been fortunate throughout my studies to be uh, challenged by a lot of really critical thinking researchers. And my recommendation to athletes, sports scientists, biomechanists is to always just question everything. There's a new shoe out every week. There's new shoe features added every week. There's new wearable technology features added every week. And they're always um, released with really flashy and exciting, um, you know, marketing releases. Um, but question everything. What is this new shoe feature? How does it relate to the mechanism of injury or performance? This new wearable feature, how does it actually help me um, monitor risk to something at risk of injury in my body. So my advice is always just question everything and be be critical of all these new um, exciting and fancy, but maybe not always mechanistically motivated um, sporting features. I think Socrates would be pretty happy with that. Uh, <laughs> love it. Um, you know, I would say is, you know, really be also, you know, cognizant of of yourself. So, you know, throughout my own journey of running, you know, I have been in injured at several different times. And really, those times have come when I have really increased my own training load way, way too fast. Right. I had a DNF from a marathon because, you know, I had such bad IT band syndrome. And that was just due to really poor training. You know, I just ramped up way too fast. And so I think what my my take home is is always just be cognizant of what's going on in your own body 
And kind of going back to Emily's point of, you know, that perceived exertion aspect. So if you can really be cognizant and understand your perceived exertion, I think you're going to probably be less injured. Nice. I love that. So, you know, at the end of the day, all these fancy wearables, maybe if they help augment your perceived exertion or they reinforce what you're you're feeling, that's great. And maybe that's a way to improve performance. So thanks again, Emily and Eric. This has been a really awesome conversation. And thanks to everybody. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Science of Performance podcast. It's been a blast talking about these topics, and I hope you have some questions as well. I'm going to do a final episode after all seven episodes air, where I'm going to answer any outstanding listener questions. So please feel free to drop those in an email to research at boatechnology.com. Or if you're a free trail member, you can put this in the forum. Thank you. Thank you.